Well, good morning. It is a delight to be with you. It's always a delight, but it's a special delight to be with you on Christmas Day. We have so much to be grateful for. And it's good to see everyone. It's good to hear all the little voices saying, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Well, let's, even now, it's good to hear that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you, and we confess our great need of you and your help. We confess that we too easily prioritize the wrong things, and that we need your help uh, fixing our hearts on what is good and true and right. So Lord, would you help us this morning as we come to this wonderful passage, and would you help us be changed as a result of our study in it? And Lord, we ask again for your help, for your glory, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning back to the Gospel of Luke. And we've stepped away from our study of Mark's Gospel just for a couple of weeks in order to fix our minds on what we could call the miracle of Christmas. There are, of course, a number of passages that we could have turned to 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 really reorient our minds and hearts on the birth of Christ. But we've chosen as our Christmas text this season, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. It's commonly referred to as Mary's Magnificat or Mary's Praise. And I'll remind you as you're turning there that these 10 verses are essentially a song of praise to God for His wonderful, gracious work in the life of a poor, uh, simple, unassuming girl named Mary. And really by extension, it's a celebration of God's wonderful, gracious work to all sinners like you and like me. Last week we covered the first two verses of Mary's hymn. We made two points and I put them in your outline that looks very uh, busy in your handout, I put them there so that you could be reminded of it. The first thing we saw last week was that the beneficiaries of God's wonderful and gracious work are those who, like Mary, are poor in spirit, humble, and recognize their creaturely status before God. Those are the ones, those are the type of, of people who benefit from the wonderful, gracious work of God. Humble, lowly, impoverished in spirit people. Proud people don't get God's help. Mary was a lowly, simple, unassuming lady, godly lady, who, from a human, uh, in a human way of speaking, gained the eye of God because she was low and she was humble. And then we also saw that. The only fitting response to God's wonderful and gracious work in the lives of sinners, and your life included, is joyful worship. When you recognize that God is at work in your life, the only response is worship. When you recognize that God has accomplished such an extraordinary work of salvation through Jesus, the only response you can make is a response of joyful, exuberant worship to God. 
And the rest of Mary's hymn, we've covered verses 46 and 47, but the rest of it, verse 48 to 55, is really Mary's glance, and look, she's observing, she's looking at the nature of God's work. And it gives us what we might call the grounds or reasons or the motivations for Mary's praise. Why does this woman spill over an exuberant, joyful worship to God? Well, it's because she's reflecting on what God has done for her. And when you do that, if you take some time, friend, just reflect on what God has done for you this year. Look at His providence. Look at His hand at work in your life. You will not be able to contain the joy at His hand. If you see it. Even in the highs and lows, God is at work. And what happens when we look back on our life at God's providence, His invisible hand orchestrating the details of our lives, even in the most difficult seasons, we can see that God is at work for good. And we can really, uh, well, rather the response to that, the response of looking at God's work is worship. Is worship. And Mary, she reflects on what God has done, and there are three features of God's work that stand out to her. And I've given you those in the outline. She sees God's compassion. She sees God's acts of power for her. And then she looks back on the full panorama of history, and she sees that God acts with remarkable consistency. She's reflecting on what God has done for her in this moment. But she's looking at his compassion in verses 48 to 55, his compassion, his power. And then she's looking at all of God's work throughout history. And what we find is that God acts consistently. God has not changed. And that truth, we'll get to it, is remarkably stabilizing for the Christian. That God does not change. Although our circumstances change, God is immovably, fixedly resolved to accomplish His good purposes in your life and in mine. Okay, so I invite you to stand with me. We'll read Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation generation towards those who fear him he has done mighty deeds with his arm he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed he has given help to israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to abraham and his descendants forever. You may be seated. So first, verse 48, Mary 
is reflecting on God's acts of compassion. Or we could put it another way, on the reality that God always, throughout history, acts with compassion. And Mary is just an example of that. Now, she's an extraordinary example, of course. Uh, This is a remarkable event, the birth of Christ. But Mary, as she's thinking about what God has done for her, verse 48, the first thing that comes to mind for her is God's compassion. So look with me at verse 48. She says, my soul, verse 46 and 47, my soul exalts, my spirit rejoices, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. That little word for at the beginning of verse 48 connects back to verses 46 and 47 and gives us the grounds or the reason why Mary is overcome with joy. And the reason is expressed very clearly. He, God, has had regard for the humble state of his slave. He has looked upon Mary. That's literally what the NASB, it says regard. ESV, I think, says looked upon. Uh, The ESV is literal here. The word is that he has looked upon the state of, of his slave. And that's what God has done for Mary. He's looked up on her. And the idea is really one of looking with pity or compassion. It's an intense look. Not an intense look that your dad gives you when you, you, know, you breached his rule. But this is an intense look of compassion, tenderness, care. It's an expression of God's personal loving concern for this woman. And, and really, a little more generally, it's an expression of God's concern and pity on someone who stands in need of help. That's how this word is used throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Genesis 16, God sees, looks upon Hagar. Right? Hagar a woman who had been mistreated by Sarah and she had been cast out into the wilderness, her and her son, to die. Now, God's promise was not going to be traced through this woman, Hagar. But how does God look upon Hagar and her child? With compassion. And He comes to her and He comes to her aid and acts on her behalf. In Genesis 31-42, God looks upon and comes to the aid of Jacob, who had been mistreated by Laban. You remember the story. In that passage, God says that, or rather, Jacob says that God has seen, looked upon, my affliction and the toil of my hands. And God saw, and then God acted for Jacob. This is a pattern throughout all of Scripture. Remember, I told you that. What we see in Mary's Magnificat is that she is just bubbling over with the Word of God. She's familiar with how God acts. She knows God, and she knows that history is just a demonstration of who God is. She knew that with Hagar, she knew that with Jacob, but she also knew it in the most fundamental, or maybe the most um, clearly expressed act of redemption in the Old Testament. Remember, God's people are in Israel. In the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, God speaking to Moses says, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And then notice, notice the verbs here. Notice what God does. I've seen the affliction of my people and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. It's striking. He saw their suffering, he gave heed to their prayers, and he told them, expressed, that he was aware of their affliction. And then Moses reports this to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 32, and listen to their response. Or listen to how Moses reported their response. So the people believed that God had seen them, heard them, and was going to act for them. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, and that He had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. It's amazing. It's not incidental. The Lord, they saw, was concerned about their plight, their situation. He saw their affliction and and promised to act. And what was their response? Worship. This is what we see all throughout Scripture. Someone is in need. They cry out to God in humble desire and, and, and urgency. And God hears their cry He looks upon their pitiful state, not with an angry eye or an eye of disappointment, but with a gracious, tender eye of compassion. Really an almost unbelievable compassion. And I think that's really our struggle. Something something has happened to us. We know that's Genesis 3, the fall, of course. But something went wrong within us after Adam sinned, and it's put us in a a situation where something within us is bent towards doubting God's kindness. We think God is angry all the time with us. And it's hard for us to overcome that impulse. So we think, here I am in this pit. Here I am in this this really difficult place. And God is removed from me. He doesn't see my suffering. He doesn't know what's happening. And He's somehow disengaged from my situation. If you just read the Old Testament, this is sort of the tendency of God's people. Is they think God has somehow overlooked their struggle. But friends, if you, if you see these people in the Old Testament throughout history, they cry out to God and they think, God, have you closed your eye? Have you looked away from your servant? Have you, have you withdrawn your promise? And they cry out to God, and what does God do? He answers and he acts. This poor man, Psalm 34, this poor man cried. And the Lord answered and rescued me from my trial. This is what we see. This is the refrain throughout all of Scripture. Now, the thing that keeps you from crying out to God for His compassion is that perhaps, I would guess, you think God has no compassion. Or you think His compassion is somehow dried up. You think somehow he's overlooked you in your plight, your situation. But friends, over and over, the refrain of Scripture is that God comes to needy people, humble people who express their need. God comes to them not with anger, but with compassion 
and mercy, and He acts for them. And, and isn't that really the story of Christmas? Right? This is the story of Christmas. God looks upon a dark world full of rebels against His will, and actually without them even calling for Him, He acts and writes the history, the story of redemption. He sees their pain. He sees what they've caused in their own lives and the the results of sin in the world. He looks upon their pitiful state and He does the unthinkable. He acts for them. He acts. He dispatches His own Son from heaven to come and save His people. That's what He does. In this theological reality is put on display for us at Christmas in really a remarkable way. When we see the nativity, what we're seeing is God's mercy, God's compassion incarnate, God's gracious condescension to us in our need. He comes to us, to us and He meets our most urgent need. So, I would just encourage you, as you contemplate your own situation, perhaps, this Christmas, maybe you're alone, maybe this year hasn't gone the way you wanted it to go, maybe you've come down with things this year that you've never hoped to experience, take some time to reflect on God's goodness to you. Take some time. Write down what God has done for you this year. Through all the highs and through all the lows, God is acting with compassion in your life. And once you stop to consider it, you'll find your heart soaring like Mary's. When she stopped and recognized God's work, the veil was pulled back. She could see that God was at work. When she did that, Mary couldn't restrain herself. She just bubbles over and, and writes this wonderful song. And Mary's first realization in verse 48 was that God had looked upon her humble estate. He had acted with compassion. And so her response was to bless God for it. She knew that she deserved nothing good from God. She knew that. When you know that, when you realize that, when you believe that, that makes you grateful for every little blessing in your life. We're not going to complain, we're not going to murmur or repine against God when we understand what we really deserve. We we understand we deserve hell. And anything above hell in this life is a gift. And so what that does for us is it makes every little blessing like a Mount Everest. It's wonderful, it's a delight, it's a joy. And for Mary... Her eyes were not fixed on her circumstances, but on the work of God. And friends, you will find, if you lift your eyes above your circumstances onto the God behind those circumstances, oh, you'll find your heart soaring. You might even write a poem. And you can have Jacob V. read it for you. All right, let's keep going. I told you this would be a short sermon. Look at verse 49. So not only does God act with compassion for Mary and other humble sinners, but he also acts with power. Verse 49, this is what she is celebrating. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. 
and holy is his name. The mighty one, the mighty one. That's God, of course. Can be translated as the one who is able. I like that. The one who is able. You lack ability to accomplish one thing or another, to get yourself out of the pit. But the one who is able comes and accomplishes his purposes. Mary is reflecting here on God's might and his strength, directed not generally out there in the world, but directed towards her and her life. Mary doesn't specify exactly what uh, specific things she's considering here when she's thinking about God's ability. But in the context, remember, she's just been told that she, as a virgin, is going to be the mother of the Messiah. She's going to conceive, not from Joseph, but the Holy Spirit would come upon her and she would conceive and bear a son who would be the Savior of the world. And she would, Scripture's clear, Matthew says, that she would remain a virgin until after the Messiah's birth. Now, I don't know how much biology you know, but that doesn't work. Right? This has to, this has to, uh, this can only, rather, be accomplished by the one who is able. The one who is mighty is the only one who can do something like this. And it's incredible. It's, it's an amazing miracle of God. And I, I think our familiarity with the story sort of uh, robs us a little bit of the wonder of it all. But maybe I can help you here. I think this is perhaps the greatest miracle that God accomplishes. Maybe second, of course, to the resurrection. But this is a wonderful miracle that God has done in, in, in conceiving of the Messiah in this woman who remains pure and holy throughout the entire nine months. The parting of the sea, the Red Sea, the healing of lepers, the raising of the dead, these things, in one sense, seem to pale in comparison to the complexities of causing a virgin to bear a child. And, on top of that, for that child to be the infinite, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty God incarnate. I mean, the complexities there are uh, innumerable, but it's incredible. Well, the Puritan James Usher said that the incarnation, Christmas, the incarnation, the, the birth of Christ, is the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. The highest pitch. Another writer, I think, captured it well when he wrote, there is a peculiar glory to this greatest of God's miracles. Among all the works Almighty God has accomplished, the incarnation has a special luster of magnificence. The juxtaposition of the majesty of the infinite God with the humility of the infinite man, or the finite man, rather, united in one magnificent person, renders the glory of the incarnation more especially brilliant than all other of God's glorious works. There's a special luster, magnificent wonder about this work of the incarnation. And it's a, a, really a, a perfect image for us 
that God is able to do whatever he wants. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God is the one who is mighty. He is almighty. He is the one who is able. He's not restricted. He's not constrained. He's not diminished by the size of whatever problem is in front of you. He is the one who is able. And he has a habit throughout history of demonstrating his ability again and again and again, not so that we all say, oh, that's good, but so that we all see it and wonder and worship at the one who is mighty. And Mary's joy, though, extends, I think, beyond the reality of the virgin conception, the greatest miracle, perhaps, to the reality of the Messiah's salvation. So Mary is thinking beyond herself here. She's thinking beyond herself to a salvation that would encompass the entire world. Mary understood the expansiveness of God's promise to her, and she understood that what God had done for her would redound in praise and worship to God for generation after generation after generation. That's verse 48. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. This language picked up from Leah all the way back in Genesis chapter 30. There are a couple of other places where this language is used. Genesis 30 verse 13, God blessed Leah with another child And Leah's response was to say, Blessed or happy am I, for women will call me blessed or happy. So she named the son Asher, which means happiness or joy or delight. So Leah's joy extended to women. She said, women will now call me blessed or happy. But Mary's blessing, her blessed state, would extend beyond just women to encompass generation after generation after generation. And the idea here is that every subsequent generation would look upon Mary as a woman who was especially favored by God. Now, we have seen that's not because Mary was extraordinary. No, she was perfectly ordinary. But she was the beneficiary of God's work because of her low, humble, godly state. Now, we should say here that this verse has nothing to do with us worshiping Mary for generation after generation. Mary would be appalled by that idea. It has nothing to do with that, but it has everything to do with the generational generational awareness that Mary was unquestionably blessed by God to be the mother of the Messiah. Jesus is the delight of every Christian, right? Jesus is the delight of every Christian. And Jesus will be the delight of every being throughout eternity, right? Every believing soul throughout eternity. Mary gets to spend her life with this infant Messiah as he grows. She gets to be the mother of the Messiah. There is no... Um, no person more influential than a godly mother. And here is Mary with the delight and the privilege of being the mother of Jesus, meaning 
that for 30 some odd years, maybe, I don't know when Jesus would have left the home. He probably would have left at just the right time. That's certainly true. Um, But for however many years Jesus was at home, maybe 13, Jesus and Mary are right next to one another. Mary is delighting in the Messiah, God made flesh in her home. Can you imagine? And not only that, but every generation following Mary looks back at Mary and says, wow, what a miracle, what a wonder that God has done this work through this woman. But all of it, remember, this, has, this is really not about Mary in one sense. It's all about the wonderful work of God. And so all generations will call her blessed because they will go through Mary to bless God for what He has done for sinners like us. I got off my notes. Okay, so this reality of God's compassion to Mary. He looked upon her with a merciful, kind, loving eye. And then he acted. His compassion on her moved him to act. This is what God's compassion does. It moves us to act. And it moved God to act in an extraordinary way. And Mary, upon reflecting on God's compassion, His power, she's, she's moved to worship. But then we see, as we move to verse 50, another feature of God's work that fueled Mary's worship. What is it about God's work that fueled Mary's worship? It's power, compassion. But there's another feature in verses 50 to 55 that we could call consistency. The consistency of God's work. I think that's what Mary's doing here. Look at verse 50. She says, His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. It's it's striking. She's celebrating what God has done for her in the first few verses. And now she shifts broad overview of God's normal ways of relating to humble, believing people. And he acts with consistency. To be consistent is to act in the same way over time. And there is no being more consistent than God. He acts with power. He acts with compassion Throughout history, he is always the same. He doesn't change. He is immovably good, wise, and sovereign and merciful. Do you believe that? God always, always shows kindness to the most needy among us. He always does that. If you are needy, spiritually and physically. And if you are humble, that is, you recognize your creaturely status before God. Right? You're not trying to steal God's role at being God. You're, you've embraced your low status as a creature. You recognize your sin. You re- recognize that you are unworthy of God's kindness. If you call on Him, He moves to meet your need. His mercy is upon generation after generation. Mercy is that. 
God's move, inward movement that works outward to meet your need. But look who this mercy is reserved for in verse 50. It's not for everyone. There's a restriction on who gets God's mercy. Verse 50. His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. This is not a general mercy that encompasses all of humanity. There's a certain kind of mercy that's reserved for people who fear God. God's mercy in this salvific way, in this um, way that Mary's describing, is reserved for people who fear Him. And what does it mean to fear God? If God's mercy is reserved for those who fear Him, you should know what it means to fear Him so that you can receive His mercy. Well, to fear God is to live in reverential awe of His majesty and to live in recognition that you are accountable to Him. That's two things. Reverential awe of His majesty and recognizing that you are accountable to Him. Or you live with this constant awareness that there is a God who is great and is at work in every detail of your life. And you live with this constant awareness that He's moving, He's at work, He's doing something. And you want to bow to His whim, as it were. Or you want to bow to Him. You don't want to bow to your co-workers. You don't want to bow to your friends' preferences. I mean, maybe there's a time for that. But you don't want to fear them. You don't want to fear other people's demands or their other people in your uh, life. You want to fear God, right? You want to live with reverential awe of His majesty and know that you're accountable to, to Him, not to your boss at work, necessarily. Right? If you fear God most of all, you will not fear people around you. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. To fear God is to live in reverential awe of His majesty, and it's to live with the realization that everything you do in your life will one day be accounted for. Are you aware of that? That every movement of your life, every word, every decision will will receive a reckoning from God. Now, I'm not talking about unto salvation. That's certainly true if you're outside of Christ. If you're in Christ, your eternity is secured, but you will stand before God to give an account for the life that you have lived and how you've stewarded your life and your words and your finances and your energies. To live with that awareness brings sobriety. It brings humility, one, and it brings an urgency to all that we do. There is nothing wasted. Right? There is no, nothing that is all moral, meaning that it's insignificant. Everything will be weighed, and we will give an account. I love 1 Peter 1.17. It says this, If you address as Father, we're speaking to Christians, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. I don't think that you get to call him father and then just live however you want to live. And if he's your father, you should conduct yourself in fear, reverential awe of him. Knowing that, he goes on, you were redeemed not with perishable things 
like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless. In other words, you ought to live with reverential fear of God because He has saved you. He's purchased you at the highest price, the blood of His Son. And He will also give an accounting. You will also rather give an accounting to Him. He will come and you will report to Him what you have done with the life you've been giving, given. I love the way that the Puritan John Flavel said it. He said, The fear of God is a gracious habit or principle, planted by God in the soul. He's getting that from Jeremiah 32, 40, which says God will put the fear of God in us. He said it's a gracious habit planted by God in the soul, whereby, listen to this, the soul is kept under and holy awe of the eye of God. And from thence is inclined to perform and do what pleaseth God. And to shun and avoid whatsoever he forbids and hates. So the fear of God, according to Flavel, is to live your life under the holy awe of God's eye. Do you live that way? Live under the eye of God. And that awareness then inclines you to live in such a way that pleases Him. Well, those who live this way, with reverential awe of God's majesty... And a a steady realization that God is the one to whom they will give an account, not their, their friends, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, but their accounting will be to God. Those who live this way are promised God's help. They're promised the mercy and the help, the assistance of God. That's what verse 50 says. His mercy is toward those who fear Him. His compassionate help. We belong to Him, and He can do with us whatever He wants. That's the reality of living as a slave before God. But when we fear God, we live with this awareness that God always does what is right and best. I don't exalt my will above God's will. You have a will in a situation, you want it to go this way. Well, maybe it doesn't go that way. Well, whose will won? Not yours. Ultimately, God's will won. It's His decree that's unfolding. Our job is not to do God's work for Him, but to bow to Him and say, Lord, Your will is right. And I think that's what Mary means in verse 49 when she says, and holy is His name. And holy is His name. The idea I think she's driving at here is that He is impeccable. Everything He does is right. He is too good to make a mistake. He's too good to be unkind and too wise to make a mistake. This is who God is. He is the potter. We are the clay. We bow to Him. We don't try to rule over Him. We bow with a reverential awe and submit to His sovereign purposes for us. That is a pathway, the pathway to joy. When you recognize that God is good, wise, and sovereign, and that He's at work in your life and in the world doing what He wants to do, not what you want Him to do, Then you find you're relieved of the burden of trying to do God's job for him, and you can relax. This is, I think, what Jesus said when he said, Matthew 6, sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Live like the birds. They 
neither toil nor spin. They just sing and eat, right? God has accomplished it all for us. And Christmas really does demonstrate that, that God has acted sufficiently for us. He's met our need, and He's in charge. And He's demonstrated that He can orchestrate history according to His appointed end. I love Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. He exalted and lowered kings. We're going to see that. He had worked everything out to accomplish His purpose with the Messiah. Now, don't you think He can do the same for you? Your life is under His care. Okay, now, verses 50 to 55 simply demonstrate what I'm arguing here. That God acts consistently. And he acts especially consistent for those who fear him. Right, so let's walk through this. Mary just sort of you know, rifles these off really quickly. And so my hope is to rifle them off just as quickly as she did. Maybe a little slower. But um, this is the reality that we see. God acts consistently throughout history. And so Mary's sequence of statements from 51 to 55 are essentially theological statements. These are realities about God. The way that God acts in the world. And it's remarkable and stabilizing and joy-inducing. All right, first, let's look at verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. Throughout the Old Testament, the arm of God is an image of God's great power. Exodus 15, 16 says that on account of the greatness of God's arm, his enemies were filled with terror and dread. Psalm 136.12 reminds us that God brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We're reminded of Psalm 115.3 as well. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He does wonderful things for His people because no one can stop Him. No one can stop Him. No one can look at Him and say, what have you done? Or why are you doing it this way? Now they could say that, but it falls flat. Because God will do what God will do. I think this is why in verse in chapter 1, verse, let me find it really quickly. Yeah, verse 37. This is why Mary hears from Gabriel that nothing is impossible with God. And Mary's in a situation that seems really difficult and complicated. Lord, how is this going to work out? And the angel Gabriel says, Mary, this is what's going to happen. And Mary says, how can this happen because... I'm a virgin. And Gabriel, you know, he has to be, I don't know if angels can laugh. I don't know what an angel thinks. But Mary ha- Gabriel has to be thinking, don't you know who God is? And he can do whatever he wants. Nothing is impossible with him. Okay, look at verse 51. B, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's acted with mighty deeds, and he's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. The proud are those who are arrogant, haughty, or pretentious, self-righteous. We are encountering these folks in the Gospel of Mark, and the Pharisees. And God opposes the proud. Of all the diseases that mankind experiences, the most deadly disease of all is pride. And that's true. And do you know why that's true? I think 
It's because pride blinds us to our need for God. Pride causes us to forget God. You know this. You get to the end of your day. You started with your quiet time. Or you read your Bible. You, your day was really busy. You go throughout your whole day. You, kind of, you finally crash and hit the pillow. And you think, wow, I haven't prayed. And I haven't even thought of God since this morning. Why is that? I somehow thought I could make it through this whole day without God's help. The humble person recognizes, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. So they're constantly throwing themselves onto the Lord. And so God opposes the proud because pride blinds our hearts. Deuteronomy 8.14. Now look at verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Again, this is a pattern throughout this hymn that God raises the low and brings down the proud. I love Job 34.24. Elihu, which was Job's wisest friend, reminds us that God breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. Job 34.24. God breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. In other words, God doesn't even ask the mighty men if he can break them into pieces. He just does it because that's what God does. He opposes the proud. He brings them down and he lifts up the humble. Verse 53, she says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Psalm 107, verse 9. Psalm 103, verse 5. Each of these psalms underscore the reality that God has a special eye for those who are hungry, physically and spiritually. I think she's talking spiritually here. Psalm 103.5 says, He satisfies us with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. God satisfies the needy. Augustine said that our hearts have a God-shaped hole. And people go around trying to fill that hole. You might be here this morning. It's Christmas Day. I need to go to church. We're glad you're here. We, please come. You should come next week as well. It'll be New Year's Day. You should come and... And uh, start the year off right. Be in the Word of God. This is the time to make you know, those changes in life. So come. We're glad you're here. But you may be here today and you're here because you've been trying to feel that void in your life. You've, you've been trying to find satisfaction. Friends, you will never find it. There's only one God, one thing, one being who can feel the hungry desire of the soul. And that's God. He satisfies the hungry with good things, but he sends away the rich empty-handed. That's the opulent. Those who have no need of him, he casts them aside. This is God's consistent way of dealing. And then look lastly with me at verses 54 to 55. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants, forever. Now, there is, without a doubt, several sermons in those two verses, but I have a commitment to you, and I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on those verses, although it's really hard not to. So let's walk through this. I think this is sort of the undergirding 
um, foundation for all that Mary is rejoicing in. Mary realizes something in these last two verses that if we realize it should give us utter hope and confidence and patience. The main verb here is he has given help. Everything else is sort of emphasizing or undergirding that reality. He has given help or come to the aid of Israel. The object of God's help is his people, Israel. And Mary seems to be narrowing down here. She's been pretty general and now she's getting very narrow on a more specific instance of God's work that she's been talking about. She is focusing in on a promise that God made long, long ago. The promise that came to, really to the world in Genesis 3.15, that from Eve, a Messiah would be born who would crush the serpent's head. And that promise was that the seed or descendant would come from Eve and, and one day would emerge, crush the serpent's head, destroy his works, and ultimately save God's people. That promise advanced from Adam and Eve to Abraham and to his descendants and to David. And then ultimately, it comes to a head in this poor, unassuming girl named Mary. It's amazing. All of this, I mean, the, you know, two-thirds of the Bible coming to a head right here in this moment with Mary. All of a sudden, Mary is able to see, as it were, the veil is rended and rent, and she's able to see that God is doing something miraculous in the world. Of course, she believed that, but in this moment, all of God's promises were finding their fulfillment in this baby that was in her womb. And it's striking because it's turning out, verse 54, or 55 rather, just as he promised. You see that in verse 55? As he spoke to our fathers. It's just like he said. Mary, in one sense, and, and all of Israel at this moment, is really vindicated for their trust and confidence in God. Remember, just think of thousands of years unfolding. And God has promised a Savior. A Savior will come. A Savior will come. A Savior will come. Captivity. Oppression. Judgment. All of these things unfolding in God's people. And then all of a sudden, in this moment, Mary and Israel are vindicated as God enters into time, as it were, and the Messiah is born. Mary realizes, and this is striking, Mary realizes that God is doing exactly what He has promised. Now, here's the question. What has God promised to us? We're Christians. This is Christmas. It's a day where we celebrate the birth of our Savior. But there are a number of other promises, primarily that Christmas is geared towards, and maybe most fundamental of all of them, is the second coming of our Lord. And we celebrate the first advent of Jesus because it confirms, just like Mary, God acted just as he spoke to our fathers. 
The first advent, the birth of Christ, confirms for us that God will do for us just like He did for Mary and Israel. And that will be that Jesus will return. And when He returns, then we will sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. That is the promise of Christmas. Really, that Jesus will come and He will make all things right. Christmas, our celebration today, is essentially a foreshadowing, a reminder that God is a God who acts consistently in history and He upholds His Word even when it looks like all hope is lost. God is faithful. And friends, I, I will remind you, He is faithfully at work in your life today. And, and the more you are aware of His work, the happier you will be. And my prayer for you, my hope for you, is that you will look at this text that as we've studied it, that your heart will rejoice today at God's work in Christ. But you will find in your heart a renewed confidence in God and a renewed patience uh, as we wait for the return of our Lord. It will happen in His time, and it will be the right time, just as it was with Mary. Let's pray. Father, we love You, and we do thank You that You have been so kind to us. Who has known Your mind? Lord, Your compassion, Your power, Your consistency played out over history reminds us that You are the unchanging immutable, faithful God who will do all that you have said and you will do it in your way. Lord, help us to let go of our delusions of control and, Father, to resign ourselves as Mary did and say to you, behold, the slaves of the Lord. Lord, in every scenario that we would rest in your work and that we would find as we recollect what you've done for us in the past and what you're doing for us in the present, and what we hope that you will do for us in the future, that that will be the fuel in our hearts for joyful worship to you. And may you, Lord, be honored by your church today as we worship you for your faithful, wonderful, gracious work to us in Christ. Amen.